and welcome to Housewives and Me, a podcast about why we love the real housewives. I'm your host, Connor Bean, and thank you so much for joining me for an episode that features our first ever American guest and someone who is well known for his love of real housewives. Of course, this week's guest is the one and only Evan Ross Katz. Um, we chatted for quite a bit, Evan and I, and I've kept in pretty much everything we talked about. Usually, I like to try and shape the interviews and cut them down a wee bit so that they're not too long. But this one, I wanted to keep as much of it as I could, because as you can imagine, Evan had lots to say. Um, so I'm not going to talk that much in this intro today. I'm going to get straight to the good stuff. Here is Evan Ross Katz on Housewives and Me. My guest today is a writer and podcaster and very Instagram famous. He writes for Rolling Stone, Oprah Magazine, amongst others, has a column with Paper Magazine all about fashion, which includes The Real Housewives, which don't worry, we're going to get into. His podcast, Shut Up Evan, is described as a, to quote him, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture, which means everybody from Shea Coulee to Olivia Wilde and even Tara Reid has been on his program. And... We are talking Real Housewives today, but he's obsessed with Buffy to the point that he is releasing a book about it in 2022, which I do have to ask Evan about because I'm a big Buffy fan and he loves Real Housewives. Evan Ross Katz, welcome to Housewives and Me. Thank you so much. It's such an honor, Connor. I have been a follower of, follower of yours for many years and it's oh just God. such a treat to spend this time together. I know because we've never actually, we've talked in the DMs, but we've never, when I've been in New York, I haven't gotten to meet you and we've never really... I think it's our first time see, see as we were saying before, sort of see each other see in the, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the parlance of Candy and Nini. So I'm very excited to talk to you today. And um, we have so much to get into. And I do actually want to ask you, Buffy, if we have time as well. But something I always do with guests on the show is I ask them how they got into Real Housewives. And I'm so curious where your journey started with the shows. Yeah, it's kind of muddy at this point because it's, you know, over a decade. But I yeah. think that I recall like, you know 12 13 years ago my dad was watching would watch the real housewives of orange county and this is like seasons one and two and this was before i knew about housewives but also before i'd really found reality television um i grew up watching like the real world and stuff but in my mind i didn't categorize that as reality tv i categorized that as like teen tv you know what i mean like that's sort of the box they put it in so my dad was watching it. I'm sure my dad was watching it for very different reasons than I do, which is funny because I remember the fact that it's like, there's a whole subset of people, especially in the beginning, that found those women, like older men like my dad that would just wanted to watch these quote unquote hot blonde women, you know, on really? television. Oh, wow. I didn't even yeah. think of that. So he would have it on, but I really think that my entry came with season three of New York. Because okay. I remember, it's like when I think of my earliest housewife memory, it's Bethany outside of, is it Lou's apartment or Ramona's apartment? When they tried to do, I think it's Lou's, and they tried to coordinate the meetup between Bethany and Jill, and oh, Bethany's yes. in the red dress, and she's outside leaning on the car, and I kept thinking, oh my god, you're going to get that dress dirty. Um, <laughs> and I remember feeling a unique investment in that friendship. And feeling so, like, I so wanted them to work it out. And I think that I recognize similarities between myself and Jill, especially, like, Jill and my mother, just because, you know, the Jewish mother trope. And that was really my hook, line, and sinker. And then I think it just, like, 
I was like, oh, there's more of this. And then it just kind of built and built and built. That's interesting. So New York, I mean, I think, yeah, New York is still one of the greatest. It's interesting that it, that's the show that got you. So that was when you got really invested as a viewer. When did this, because you talk about Housewives a lot on your Instagram and Twitter and you have a big following about platforms. So alongside talking about fashion, you always give time to Bravo and Housewives. When did the fandom of it come into play for you and talking to other fans? When did you realize that you were doing that? That's such an interesting question and thing I've been thinking a lot about, which is like, what fandoms do I enjoy dipping my toe in? Because like, I'm very new to the Survivor fandom and I have found that to be like, so interesting in that like, it's a very, not to tangent, but kind of, but like, it's not a very holistic fandom. They tend to like talk about seasons 20 through 40. And I am on season 22 right now. So my knowledge is one to 22. And I feel a little bit like boxed out of the nuanced conversations I want to have. Whereas with Bravo, I feel like there's a plethora of fandoms, which is to say like, I love a tweet about Alex McCord. And there's a certain kind of Housewives fan that's going to appreciate that, which is not your more sort of um, bop in and bop out kind of fan, but more of like your historian fan, someone like you and like Brendan and Dan on on Come Through Queen that I really love. But I feel like in contrast to like a drag race, which is another show you and I both love, it seems, and obviously there's gonna, you know, there's room for, for nuance here, but it seems like a less toxic fandom on the whole. I say that while recognizing I think the Housewives have a very large conservative audience, but I don't think that that conservative audience is the same people that engage with the fandom, which I think tends to skew more towards folks like you and I who both, and I'm not, and correct me if I'm putting words in your mouth here, and I don't mean to, but it's like we both love laughing with and laughing at the women. And in preparation for today, I was like thinking about how all those people are like, oh my God, like fire Kelly Dodd. And like, I don't like Kelly Dodd, don't get me wrong. But it's like, she's exactly the kind of thing that we for so long have wanted in our housewives. And it's funny how all of a sudden people tend to be like, oh, we want like good hearted, kind people on this show with good moral compasses. And it's like, that is not the house of which this is built on. So I (laughs) tend to really connect with the fans who kind of are able to use that dual perspective in realizing that like we love these women and we love to hate them and it can be both yeah i think it's there's a certain audience that what is invested in it and takes it seriously and would defend it to people who wouldn't get it but also are well able to enjoy the campness of it or when it's so bad it's good and that's the beauty particularly of say a great season in new york atlanta the high and low where it's actually like okay one week they're all selling sex toys at a friend's party. Another week, they're having a real conversation and it's the mix of the two. And I think, I don't know, for me as a fan of the shows in general, I love that kind of, the tonal whiplash, which actually I enjoy in a way. Completely. And I and I miss it in a lot of senses because, you know, the one show that currently does it the best is Potomac. But even in watching the latest season of Orange County, and when I say I'm watching it, it's like I have it on in the background. Um, <laughs> that tonal whiplash you speak of, which is a really good way to put it, there's none of that. It's just kind of like shots between one woman's sorrow and another woman's sorrow. And that quality you mentioned, like that camp aspect, I think was the original. I didn't realize that in the beginning, because again, like I came to it for the Joe Bethany friendship. But over time, quickly, especially moving into season four of New York, which I think mm-hmm. is a shift tonally in the show, especially in like Sonia assuming the character of Sonia. 
Um, yes. Because Sonia season three and Sonia season four are different, they're different actresses. Um, that's <laughs> really a moment I think for me that I clued into to liking the show on that sort of camp level that you speak to. It's funny. I've you've brought up so much stuff that I want to like get into. I was going to ask you about OC at some point anyway, so you might as well do it now. We've just had this really exciting season of Potomac and on this show I've had guests come on and talk about it halfway through the season and we I just did an episode where we got into the reunion, etc. OC, on the other hand, as you say, like I am watching it week to week. I understand there is, particularly in the US, the fandom sort of an attempt to not acknowledge it, which I actually I think is a smart move in terms of how it will force the network to look at the show. But I'm watching it because I'm in Ireland and I can't affect the ratings. But I'm finding I'm watching it three or four days later and I'm watching it to keep up with, say, something you might post on Twitter or what will come up on Come Through Queen. I'm not watching it because I feel the urgency. How do you feel about this season of OC and the kind of conversation around it? Um... It's interesting. Similarly to you, it's like, I want to be up to speed for Come Through Queen. So that's a lot of why. <laughs> yes, I, to I, to <laughs> um, I don't think much of it. I think it is a disaster this season, but not because of the controversy that surrounded. I feel like that's kind of separate. I think that OC, I think losing Vicky and Tamara, um, and I, I realize I'm contradicting my own earlier statements on social media in which I was like, yes, like fire these awful women. But I think <laughs> that I had this realization and it's an ongoing realization, which is that like everything that I wanted them fired for was more the fact that I didn't think they were living up to their own potential. Um, less it was that I didn't think they were living up to the show's potential. And I think that we are just left with a cast that really can't carry their weight both individually and then the the cast just lacks dynamism i think a lot about like the best seasons of new york which there are many but let's say like season seven yeah exactly but like season seven for instance um which i think is the best cast one of the reasons why that works so much when you have like a heather thompson and a Ramona Singer is that they're both individually interesting. You get like this fabulous Heather Thompson, Jack's journey with her son and his sort of like disabilities and and her trying to reconcile her own sadness, but also wanting to be the best possible mother. And then you have Ramona who's like, I need an air conditioning at this house in the country and I'm going to order one (laughs) and have it delivered. and, And that's such a lovely thing to have both of those. I just think that with OC, like the women aren't sort of up to snuff. Um, and so it's left us with a boring season. I think with regards to the conversation, like outside of the show about like telling everything that kind of interests me less. And and I, I think that there was a part of me like earlier on that was very much like of the mindset of like fire Kelly, but I think that's my own tendency to like, want to play into like the easily viral statement. It's similarly to like the statement of like, fuck Miss RuPaul, which like at the end of the day, like I love RuPaul. I don't love Kelly Dye. I think it's a little bit different, but it's in terms of, yes, it's always going to be popular to like hate on the villain figure. It's really easy to do. And like, it will give you success on platforms like Twitter. But ultimately I would be all for Kelly's place on the show if she were delivering more as she has in past seasons. The flaw with Kelly right now and with the show is there's just no there there. So I just say, I think it's too far gone. They've made too many mistakes. I miss having 
Anchors of OGs. This is the first series out of any Housewives show uh, to lose all of its OG. The fact that Shannon Bedore, who I believe joined in season nine, is the last remaining is startling. And so I think it's um, the ship has sailed, the way I see it. Yeah. And also, I mean, I'm noticing with Atlanta a little bit as well that I think they're doing their best to either work it into the show or sort of ignore it at times or try and downplay it. But you can just see how much the COVID stuff has just impacted them filming enough to have a structure. And actually, one of the only things I'm really enjoying about OC is seeing how they self-shoot, seeing how they've clearly like used this FaceTime call and then this yeah. one person on a laptop. And then, you know, stuff like seeing Shannon basically film her own spiral into like anxiety around COVID. And when she gets it, there's something about the sick, like like the galaxy brain view of and then Shannon popped her iPhone on a tripod and recorded herself talking to her boyfriend about being sick like that side of it the nuts and bolts of it are interesting I don't think much of the storytelling is interesting for sure and I think that um one thing that that show uniquely lacks is just the idea that like I'm fine with the women not being friends IRL, but like these just women have no connections. So even in the top half of this season, when we were getting like Bronwyn and, and uh, Shannon as friends, to me that just felt, it was like very coworker vibes. And so when things quote unquote fell apart and they started fighting um, and it escalated so quickly, I just was like, I never believed them to be friends. So there's just no, there's very few stakes. Whereas again, we're always going to come back to the Potomac, <laughs> but like having that Giselle and Robin friendship, for instance, and having it be so natural and authentic, um, it just comes down to the fact that OC doesn't have any version of that. And I know some people might say like Emily and Gina, um, Emily is not a conversation I want to have, oh. but <laughs> it just like she exists and i wish she didn't that's very real housewives that's not a conversation i want to have <laughs> yeah exactly well because she it's like exists. sometimes i feel like if you if you invest too much on like hating a housewife as i think we and myself included have done with kelly dodd you give them like you give them reason to exist because they inspire so much vitriol and with like an Emily, it's just like, she doesn't inspire anything in me. I just don't care. It's interesting we're chatting now because roughly a, a year ago or so, it was actually pre-COVID, which I'm trying to imagine that time in my life. You interviewed yeah. Bronwyn for Oprah Magazine Online. And at the time, Bronwyn was getting some flack because her husband, Sean, had worn heels and posts on social media. And they were like, we're supporting our kid who's into drag. We've always been LGBTQ allies. Since then, obviously, Bronwyn has come out and says she's a lesbian. She's now the first well she's the first out lesbian cast member who's like full-time right because i know if rosie was friend of so she's had in in that year there's been a bit of a shift for Brahman publicly mm -hmm. i mean i know you've interviewed her then and you followed the story since what do you make of Brahman coming out that way were you surprised had there been inklings or had she even alluded to when you spoke to her last year there there hadn't been inklings at all i think that it's incredible to see someone with visibility using their platform to live their authentic life. Um, with that said, um, I don't <laughs> particularly, well, I will say at the time that I did the interview, I had a very favorable impression of her. I both thought that she was like really communicable and just kind and, and, and I really liked her answers to the questions. Particularly, it's like not just that she defended Sean, it was how she did it. She was like very eloquent. It reminds me of like Heather Gay and how she sort of came out 
against a troll that tried to say that, tried to use the pejorative uh, use of calling her a trans person. And Heather Gay was just like, I'm not. And if I was, I would be like a vocal ally for the LGBTQ plus community. Um, everything that's happened with Bronwyn has been confusing, but it's just a reminder of the fact that it's just like, there are the LG just because you are LGBTQ plus does not make you a good person. Just because you have endured struggle in your life, faced adversity or done something noble does not make you a good person. And I think that with Bronwyn, her erratic behavior this season, which some could say is, you know, she's a recovering alcoholic, give her a little grace for that. And sure, I'm happy too. Um, but I just don't think that being on this show is the best thing for any person in recovery, um, but specifically Bronwyn, who's also going through like these several journeys all at once. And I think she's difficult to talk about because it can come off insensitive really easily. And my thing is just like, I don't think Bronwyn is a great person, but I also and supportive of the journey she's on, I think she's made it really confusing for us, the viewer. I know like the latest stuff has been like the whole thing of like her not being comfortable with Sean dating. And I think it's easy for straight people to come out and say something bad about Bronwyn and have it be perceived as homophobic. Like I know a lot of the women I'm worried are gonna come at her in the reunion for things that I actually think are rooted in truth, which is just that like, it doesn't make sense a lot of the way that you're purporting to live your life, but there's a hypocrisy at play in how you're criticizing your own husband. But at the same time, it's like, it feels a little bit like an in conversation. And I can understand some sensitivities when people outside of the community start to come at her. So don't love her, but also like, I don't love, I'm not here for straight people coming for Broadman, if that makes sense. No, it's funny. I actually feel somewhat the same as in overall, I generally like watching her on the show because I think the story is interesting. I don't always like how she behaves. I'm glad that there's someone who's now out and gay and on these shows just in general because it, like the many firsts we're having with Housewives and with a lot of pop culture in general, a lot of these firsts feel like they could have happened years ago. Mm -hmm. But it is interesting. I've noticed even the way Vicky is weighing in on her on social media and Vicky's not on the show and we know Vicky doesn't have great form in talking about anything related to anything anyone being gay or gay stuff in general without it coming off just a tad bit homophobic or Judge Judy you know a little bit like hold on sis so I know what you mean there are people who don't get it and want to go after her whereas people like us I think who get it to a degree are also like and you're being a little bit of a dickhead as well like we can see the (laughs) the nuance and can I just say and this might be my own problematic take I would so much rather watch a Vicky Gunvalson than I would a Bronwyn Wyndham Burke. That said, it's like, who would I rather be friends with? Bronwyn, but I think Vicky's better TV. And this to me underlines like a conversation I hope that the Bravo fandom can start to explore a little bit more, which is like, I think sometimes we assign this moral compass to these shows that we didn't a couple of years ago. And one could say, well, that's because the times have changed, right? And so we as viewers must change as well. That's valid. I'm just saying that's not how I watch the shows. 
And I think that there's room for, for, for all of those perspectives. It's such a fine line, I think, for reality TV to walk as well, because with scripted shows, you know, there's a much stronger idea of where a story is going to go or where they intend it to go. As much as we know there's planning and manipulation, reality TV, you can't account for everyone's behavior at all times. And sometimes you do have to let stuff play out to a point so that the show can actually address it properly. So yeah, it is a fine line. And sometimes you're like, I'm not watching this because they're my friends. I'm watching it because they're awful. So I do, speaking of another long-standing Housewives show that's been hit by COVID, we mentioned Atlanta in passing. How are you feeling about the show at the moment? I'm I'm enjoying seeing Portia's activism integrated in a real way, the way they've gone hell for leather in a great way about it. But I'm just finding the rest of it feels so like on it just feels like there's no anchor or sense of storyline so far yeah i i completely agree i think that um i think the porsche stuff is wonderful to see i'm not sure that it is in line with real housewives as we know it that said the argument that i would make or that i've seen made and that i think is perfectly valid is it's like well porsche is evolving. Portia is reacting to how her own life has been upended through witnessing these these tragedies throughout the country. So as a result, the show needs to change because she has changed. That's perfectly valid. I thought Kenya's criticisms of her recently were insane. Um, and the whole like, oh, like why would she want to do this on camera? It feels even weird for me to say this because it's so obvious. It's like, of course she did it on camera, Kenya. That's the point. Um, that's the point, Yolanda. That's the point, Kenya. Yes. <laughs> um, which kind of goes to like this thing of like, Kenya is troubling in similar ways to like a Vicky in that it's like, she is doesn't always say the things that I like to hear or that I think a lot of people like to hear. But we also recognize the fact that Kenya is good television. That That remains sort of the difficult thing about Kenya. And then at the same time, they're like, and this is why Kenya is a good manipulator, but it's like she brings on Mark and this whole plot to the show because it makes her there. It makes her, uh, it makes it easier to root for her. Right. It's like there, it, she basically brought on an enemy. And so she was like, I'll be the hero by, by, by proxy. Um, and to some people, I'm sure they fall for that. I feel like Kenya lost her luster for me um, after a few seasons, but I understand. And I think that there is value in Kenya, but real quick, I'll just say to your point, yes, this season feels very rushed. It feels very incomplete. I don't know what show Drew Sedora is on, but it's certainly not The Real Housewives of Atlanta. Um, <laughs> and and I feel like I'm echoing a lot of things that Dan has spoken about on Come Through Queen, but it is really troubling to watch the COVID restrictions um, being ignored or sort of like trivialized and not to say that I expect better from the women. I don't. I do expect more from Bravo. I do expect them to, it's like, I do think these behaviors we see on not specifically housewives, but in the culture at large, I think people's lax attitude about these restrictions are the kind of things that get into people's heads and they start to wonder, oh, these women are out living their normal lives, why can't I, right? Especially because going back to the beginning of OC, the whole very intent of this show from the beginning was like this how the other half lives because there was some level of the network crafted in a way to make it aspirational, right? Because there was this idea that like affluence was goodness. And so I think that I'm troubled by just the, even seeing the Cynthia stuff with the wedding, um, which is super cringe. And mm. I just feel like I wish the show would have had the thought to 
put a pause in things or be better about like, you know, then those face shields, then they like lift them up and they're like talking out of their mouth. So it just feels like it's hard to watch it consistently and see them just like not take COVID seriously despite the way in which I think that they think they're taking COVID seriously, (laughs) especially when, and it's worth noting this, this this season was shot when the numbers were, I think a little bit either flatlined or, or it seemed like we were on the air quotes up, obviously seeing the turn things have taken. I think that also makes it extremely troubling, but that's what happens when you rush a season out in that way. It's like, sorry to tangent really fast, but I recorded an episode of my podcast, which were in first men, and then um, not a week later, these racist tweets of his his came out. We chose to pull the episode as a result because I was like this, because we didn't get into it in the episode because I didn't know about it. And therefore it was no longer timely. It felt weird for me to release an episode that was going to ignore this headline, right? And I feel similarly about Atlanta, which is just like, I get that you filmed this in a world in which COVID did not which by the way, it should have, but in which you felt like COVID was not the the global pandemic that it is and was, but <laughs> I wish they would be a little bit more reactive. At the very least, sorry, I'm going long-winded, give us the Sherry Pie season 12 um, bumper at the top of the episode explaining this episode was filmed during COVID, the cast underwent these tests, give us all of the rundown so at least we can understand a little bit more into Bravo's thinking. I think that part is really missing from the equation. Yeah, and it's funny, actually, because I have thought that too. In a way, I get it. We all, particularly because we had Beverly Hills in New York in the first throws of lockdown and all that kind of thing. And because they were filmed pre-pandemic for everybody, it was this beautiful release and da-da-da-da-da. And now we know everything filmed since is going to be filmed in this pre-post-mid-COVID world. And I actually think even a small disclaimer running across the screen during the first scene while they're kicking in someone's kitchen would be enough. And actually, funny enough, I didn't expect it on the first episode of Dallas, but I liked how... So when Stephanie just said, like, listen, we've done this and this, so don't tweet us, it was a bit flippant, but it actually showed on some level the show baked in a little bit of a nod to, we've thought about this. And I think, too, I mean, there's a couple of things going on. The main one is that it's clear that they have jumped ahead a lot in their scheduled edit and storytelling on Atlanta and so you're seeing I mean and I don't mean this to be shady because I offer people being whatever size they are but some of the women talked at length about their weight gain and then they're sprinkling in scenes where they clearly look a little bit slimmer and then they cut back and they're not and I'm like I don't mind what weight they are but this is a tell this is yeah this is a tell that this was probably dropped in later which is I'm sure happens way more than we think on housewives but like you can just tell because of that, I'd say some weeks it was like all hands on deck, everyone wears a mask off camera. Yep. And then some weeks it was like, we just need a visor. And so you're right, it's created this weird thing where by trying to not acknowledge COVID and give us our escapism, it actually feels like you can't escape it then. Whereas if they said at the top, they were all tested and carry on. A bit like with Drag Race, we know they were quarantined and they got vi- screens up so I can enjoy season 13. I'm not thinking, right. why doesn't Michelle have a mask on? You know what I mean? Like That's why I'm like all for like what Summer House is doing. Like if they could get the women all together on a trip, I do think there are ways in which production can continue. But, and I'm not the first person to bring this up, just seeing the drivers and Kenya going to visit her lawyer inside and seeing all the ways in which they are interacting with others, that's the part that's tricky. And can I just say about this, like, this world we're living in, it's like, they just announced the new Sex in the City reboot. And it's like, and mm-hmm. it says on the press release, like, production is set to begin this spring. And it's just like, 
why we are in the middle of this pandemic like wait it out it's just so confusing like we waited it's been 10 years since we got the the second film which we forget about canonically for good reason <laughs> it's just so odd to me to see shows like housewives and then shows like this reboot choose to like go into production now when it's like you are not beholden to any schedule it's like we just ended atlanta during the pandemic we have yet to see a real housewives of new jersey trailer mind you it's probably dropping as we're recording this yes yes (laughs) but i'm just saying it's like so strange these excuses of like well we just we want to give you escapism blah 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 and it's just like we are not at a time right now where we are able to have escapism. I do not think we have earned it culturally. Um, And so I just find it odd to see shows like Housewives or shows like Sex and the City act like they're doing us some great public service, which is the way that I think it gets messaged a lot by, by a lot of people that it's like, you know, thank God we have Housewives. And I get it, but it's like, I was gonna say, I expect more. I don't expect more, I want more. I suppose at least with film and television production, or shows that maybe even ones that picked up, say, that had to pause and went back, you do feel like, well, if they're working on that, then they are going to have a very tight set and they know how many people are in each scene and they can kind of account for certain things and put people in pods. Part of what makes, like, Housewives fun is some weeks you start off an episode in someone's kitchen and then they meet for brunch and then they have a, a lavish dinner that they all go to and there's hundreds of people. And so they're trying to give us a similar flavor when the things they would do that are the backbone of just scene setting for a show are not there. Whereas at least with Sex and City, if they're like, we have say 50 extras that are tested and they're used for every scene, like scripted TV, as much as I think you're right that this urgency to keep making stuff and paint it as a win for us is a little bit shady, but at least it's scripted. They can sort of account for things. It is funny watch them try and act as normal on Housewives when so much of what makes Housewives work even the idea that they're going to go on a trip, it's like, to where? Who's flying? Porto Voyager with the gays? I don't think so. Like, yeah. <laughs> where are they going to, like, it is, it's a weird time. It's such a weird time. There's someone I want to ask you about who's not technically on Housewives at the moment, but is still very much part of the discourse. And I always appreciate when you talk about her because I think you have such a long-standing relationship with her as a fan is Bethany Frankel, who isn't on New York, left New York kind of abruptly, really. I'm sure production were like, cheers, Bethany is working on some kind of show that is being filmed. Dorinda seems to be in the mix, has a podcast, seems to enjoy... I don't think she wants to be a right-wing favourite. I don't think she wants to play the left-wing, say the right-thing buzz that has become currency as well. And she just seems to try and court controversy in a way I'd find very odd. Where are you with Bethany and what do you think she... Do you think she'd ever go back to New York? I wish. Um, where am I at with Bethany? I've had such a journey, you know, love, hate, love, hate, love, hate. <laughs> Currently in a hate, but the okay. pendulum can always swing back. Um, I think that Bethany suffers from the Meghan McCain syndrome of having that inability to log out. And I think that a podcast is a horrible format for Bethany because a lot of Bethany's intelligence, and she has a lot of it, is kind of best displayed in contrast to stupidity. And so I think a lot of the reason why we first fell in love with Bethany in the early seasons of the show, but especially in season seven through 11, were here is all this chaos, and here is the calm amidst the chaos who is going to point out all the ludicrousness of said chaos. She became like, not only the narrator 
and the Greek chorus, which I think she's often credited as, but like did it in such um, a comedic and, and pithy and smart way. Bethany in conversation with other smart people, and I use air quotes because it's like her perception of smart people is myopic. Um, but I think that this sort of showcases a lot of Bethany's shortcomings. And I think it's worth noting that I think a lot of what Bethany thinks she's great at are not the things that I think she's great at. Now, one could say, well, doesn't she know what she's great at? I mean, she knows herself. You don't even know her. True. You could totally argue that. But I'm just saying from my perspective, as a long, as a viewer of the journey of Bethany Frankel for a long time, I know what I like in my Bethany, and I'm not currently getting it. And I just find like her takes online, I mean, the WAP one being the most obvious, to be so cringe and but but worse than her takes because i'm all, i'm all about i mean i'm fine with a bad take worse than her takes though are her feeling that like she needs to message them that again with the megan mccain syndrome and i just think that she is someone who built up a lot of goodwill with like you know this is a crisis and all the the great things that she did but the goodwill she built up it's like it can be it can go through a sifter very easily and so i am all for bringing her back to new york i don't think it will happen but never say never um but at the moment yeah i i am not here for frankel i feel much the same and i think you've hit on something there i think sometimes too bethany forgets that there was definitely times on new york where you say she was a narrator greek chorus funny likable shared she, at times she was sharing stuff that most reality stars wouldn't share but i think she often forget forgot or forgets that a lot of what made her great was she was edited well on a show that wanted her to win whereas when you were in the, the yep. podcast format i mean i sound arrogant saying this as we do a podcast but it's much more it shows much more of who you are both better and for worse and you can't kind of hide when you're on a microphone and you can't rely on someone putting a little funny music sting under everything you say and playing it off a shot of you side-eyeing your friend at brunch. You know, I think sometimes when I see how she communicates on even on social media, I realize, oh, you don't realize that what makes you great is you working in part of another form where they highlight your best parts. And I think it's worth mentioning, it's like a lot of the things I liked or loved about Bethany early on, I recall the scene with Kelly um, at Catch when they have the I'm up here, you're down here scene. And one of the reasons why I think Bethany is so dynamic is her ability to be silent. The whole great thing about the Kelly Bethany stuff is that Kelly's at a 10 and Bethany's at a two and stays at a two until go to sleep. The reason why Go to Sleep lands the way it does is because up until that point, Bethany, take or Meredith Marks really borrowed from the Bethany playbook of not engaging, which is just like that Bethany didn't engage with Kelly. And I think that right now, the Bethany that we have is like, she is mis-engagement. And yeah, so I just, um, I, I, I look forward to a time, and I think it can totally be when Bethany kind of assumes more of an ensemble role and less of a leading lady. Um, that said, real quick, like I am, I like Bethany and I kind of will always like her. So even though I think she is annoying and in a bad space at present, if she starts selling that baloney again, like I will be first in line. So, you know, 
And you mean actual bologna. You mean skinny bologna. girl. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she starts Her selling del- that bologna. You're like, official bologna. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, is that like a New Yorkism? No, you mean her actual lunch yeah. meat if it comes back on sale. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned Marion at Marks there, and I actually forgot to ask you very briefly about Salt Lake City and where you are with it. Because at the time we're chatting, I think the show has sort of peaked up a little bit again. Like Andy was saying, it was the longest first season reunion they ever filmed, etc. So how do you feel about Salt Lake City? I Similarly to what seemed to be like the, the mass perception at the onset, I was like very here for it. I think it came out the gate very, it reminds me of Beverly Hills season one in feeling like this is a pre-existing world that had formed its characters and its hierarchy. And it's, it, it, it's, it just felt really fully realized, I should say. Um, I kind of middled on it from here um, in that I don't understand what's going on with Mary, but not in a like leans in kind of don't understand way. It seems, and I've heard a bunch of rumors. There's a lot of rumors about Salt Lake City. One is that it was filmed, that they filmed it for a bunch of time. And then there was like a huge multi-month break. And then they went back and shot a bunch more. The other rumor is that Mary stopped filming about halfway through the season, which does make sense. Um, my big, biggest concern with Salt Lake City is just the unearned drama. So, like, the latest incident I can think of is, like, Jen Shaw um, throwing a glass at a party after after Whitney came over to tell her. I, I don't even know what that fight was about. Yeah, I don't think Whitney was, either. <laughs> yeah, but it was the throwing of the glass moment where I just was like, we're taking things and, and making very big scenes out of nothing burgers, which is very much like, kind. Of, it reminds me of like the present place of Beverly Hills, which is just like, anytime there's like a shard of something to get mad about, it's like, you know, Pantygate, I think is like a great example, which is just like, let's take this small thing and blow it up which is i should say sprinkle cookies on new jersey there is a way in which you take a small thing and blow it up well it can be done they're not masters of that art um but i would say like obviously i think i am aligned with most people in thinking heather gay is the mvp i guess i just like am not so sure if we are built for like long-term success i think we need a seventh woman um i think we need to get rid of jen i think that she doesn't work on the show um and this might be a lesser popular opinion but i also just whitney is not working for me um as a housewife i know a lot of people really do like her i just feel like i watched an interview that she did did with danny pellegrino um on his fabulous podcast and i just was like she lacked any kind of um charisma at all to sort of like keep me engaged so i will keep watching and i definitely think it's in a better shape than the majority of our franchises but i also think that's kind of like telling about the current state of affairs i am fascinated by martin marks and her son brooks has become an important side character and i bring that up a because he's been great tv even when he's frustrated us but also because you got to interview brooks recently how did that come about that you got to chat to him and what was it like speaking to him because he's an interesting character he's this young guy on the show who's who's getting more camera time than kids sometimes get but he's obviously still kind of a side character like it's an interesting one 
So that came about through our DMs. And it's funny because like at the very beginning of the show, like I followed him. He only had like a couple thousand followers. And I was like DMing him and like it wouldn't I wouldn't even be on red. And I was so upset because like at one point he's like, this is how like small my brain is, but I was like looking at his likes on his comments on his post and he had like liked all of the comments except for mine. And I was like, oh my God, like Brooks Marks, <laughs> like does it like Brooks Marks notice me, please. Um, <laughs> yes. But anyway, he finally noticed me. We connected. I set up the interview and I'm going to be diplomatic and just kind of say, I think that there is very little worth talking about when it comes to Brooks Marks. I think that he had a couple of really funny bites in the first episode, like genuinely funny things. Like I remember Seth was like, what music should we listen to? And Brooks was like, silence. Um, <laughs> but I would just say that like Brooks to me, this is so mean. Brooks is a little bit of like a one trick pony. Um, and so I think that our collective, and when I say our, I mean like gays, our collective <laughs> yes. response to Brooks was more sort of like, we've been starved for so long and we were given a scrap. And so we were like ravenous. Now with a couple weeks of hindsight, Give me Fernanda from uh, Real Housewives of Orange County, the first, the bisexual goddess. She might be a lesbian, actually, um, over Brooks Marks any day. I just, um, I think that I would have a better response to Brooks had he come in an earlier era of the show before social media. But I just feel like we, and when I say we, I largely mean myself. I am guilty. Um, we gave him an ego, and I he should be a little bit more insecure. That's <laughs> <laughs> you build them up to knock them down. <laughs> You're like, I'm so sorry. Oh, God. He's not going to like any of your comments after this. That's all I'll say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it's funny because you interviewed Brooks for your paper magazine, Kong, which is about fashion. And fashion is something that you write about as well as Housewives, Drag Race, all those things. I mean, we see fashion on the show, obviously, in terms of what they wear becomes symbolic of who the characters are. I'm curious, what role do you think fashion plays on Housewives and how has that changed? Because there has been this shift to the fashion being taken more seriously. So I'm curious what you think about that as well. I love this question. I think that it should be explored in depth. It's like, you know, in doing all this research for my Buffy book, it's like there are so many essays about like, every component of Buffy. And I hope one day we, you know, give some similar attention to Housewives in the fashion. Fashion and the uh, interior design of the homes are two aspects of the show that I think deserve more uh, conversation. Um, yes, I think you make a really good point. I think particularly in the first couple of seasons of Orange County, the first season of New York, the first couple of seasons of New Jersey, um, there just was a lot of jeans, a lot of juicy couture, um, just a general casual vibe um, because it was much more rooted in reality and not reality TV, which are two which are two different genres. I think that as a result, largely of Beverly Hills, I think it can't be denied that Beverly Hills was really the one. I think Atlanta and New York were like doing versions of glam um, before Beverly Hills really became known as such. But I think Beverly Hills had an effect that reverberated not only throughout Housewives, but also kind of signaled to 
people, but mainly women on these reality shows that like, this is not just a business opportunity because Bethany was the one that sort of introduced the business component. But I think people like Erica and Dorit sort of saw the influencer opportunity. Um, and it's kind of just like, as you see with uh, what Dorit and Erica's Instagram accounts have become, and there's others within the Pantheon that have gone this route, but it's like they essentially function as they're doing like high gloss editorials in their homes, um, which is, you know, it's a choice. I'm interested to an extent. Um, I, I'm not really like a label chaser. And I think that one of my issues, and again, it's like, I contribute to the problem that I'm about to highlight, um, is it's a lot of Gucci, Versace, Dior, Chanel. It's basically just, if you have money, you have access. And if you have access, you can wear designer labels. It's a similar conversation that's being had in the drag race world right now as well, which is just that at the end of the day, the beauty and the cost of this beauty, both the makeup and, and the looks themselves are privilege on display. And I feel like if you have that kind of money, it should be going towards the stylist and not the clothes. And the stylist should be doing pulls of lesser known designers. I just think there's a big opportunity to be a tastemaker. And I don't think we have a single instance that I can think of. Mm, Monique, <laughs> Monique definitely turns some looks. Um, but it's just like, I don't think there's a, a woman I can think of who really uses the opportunity um, in a way that's like forward thinking. And I think it's a bummer that like Erica and Dorit are kind of seen as the fashion dolls because I just think that they're not reductive. That's not even the way I think about it. It's just kind of like they're doing, it's very obvious and they get a lot of praise for it, both from the other women on the show and then outside the show. Again, I've written about the fashions of Beverly Hills for my paper column. So I, I do not exonerate myself from that which I am pointing out. But I guess it's just kind of like I'm bored and I look forward to somebody coming on. I don't know who it could possibly be. Not Leah, um, but someone coming on and kind of like turning looks but not in an expensive way i think it's like we have to get out of this mindset and this isn't just housewives we have to get out of this mindset that like fashion is wealth that's to dress well means you spend money or means you wear recognizable labels because it's just like it's and this is the same thing about the inside of these women's houses it's just so um it's like this eye towards lavishness without understanding taste that's interesting. And that's funny. That has, yeah, I, I, I see what you mean. The kind of, some of them don't have a point of view, but they have a lot of money and they think that those two things are the same. And I think you're right. I have felt that on Dragus as well. Some of them spend a lot of money in an outfit, but I'm like, I don't see you in this outfit. You mentioned there that Dorit and Erica get a lot of praise that you don't, that you understand, but you don't personally maybe have the same feelings about. Are there any kind of fashion faves on Housewives that you have? And is there anyone where you're like, you're getting it wrong and I need you to get it together. Fashion faves would be Karen Huger um, is probably the top tier. Um, Garcelle 
is not only really consistent, but I'm like super excited for what Garcelle can bring to her second season now that she's had a season to like look at what was working and look at what wasn't. But like Garcelle is just so glamorous, like in a million ways. I've been a fan of Garcelle's for so long. It's so exciting to see her getting like proper fashion coverage um so those two come to mind other fashionable you know who like has you know who has really good style this is a strange opinion Luann (laughs) I think Luann is someone who dresses well for her body for her age for her aesthetic is not super labely and not for nothing, I know this is an exhausting conversation, Giovanni looks great on Luann. Like, we can joke all <laughs> we want about, like, what Giovanni Feeling has Giovanni. Well, Yeah, within the zeitgeist of Housewives. But in all seriousness, it's like, Lou in a, Giov- in a Giovanni look, it's a serve. It's a consistent serve. Um, and I went to their store when I was in L.A. pre-COVID, and it's like, their price point is like dumb, don't get me wrong, but it's not like Chanel dumb. It's not Dolce & Gabbana dumb. So it's like, I think Lou consistently looks good and has a real aesthetic. So so Karen, Garcelle, Luan. Okay, and are there any, God forbid me, but are there any fashion flops or you're just like, no, this is not working and I know you could do better kind of, is there anyone, is that too harsh a question to ask? No, I love it. Um, I mean, obviously <laughs> Giselle, but that's like the easy answer. Um, fashion flops. Uh, Kyle Richards is oh. a consistent fashion flop for me. Leah McSweeney would be a fashion flop. Um, all of the New Jersey ladies, um, <laughs> sorry Marge, um, would be- all of them. <laughs> fashion flop and um yeah that's who who comes to mind um but wait one other person i think has really good style for the most part more in her early years than now because now it's gotten like very campy but i really love cynthia bailey's style in her early in like the original iteration of cynthia that we saw um now it's like oh my god it's just like the, the the cynthia journey like let's have that conversation at some point but um i really really loved her style early on you mentioned karen huger there and we've talked about brooks marks as well who are two people that you interview for your column and it's funny because i love to ask in the show if anyone's ever had a housewives run-in and usually particularly with the irish guests it's usually i once saw them like one of my tweets but when it comes to run-ins and being in the mix you have popped up on two of the shows you have interviewed several housewives i mean i <laughs> ask you about all of them but you also interviewed dorinda you did that on camera you spoke to sutton when um, her first season was happening as well in Beverly Hills. So what is it like, like what are your favorite run-ins that you've had and what is it like to interact with housewives in any kind of real life meaningful way? It sort of, it runs the gamut in terms of, I always um, obviously have the expectation from what I see on the show, but there are a couple of things that are interesting. There's the behind the scenes of like getting the interview set up. That's always really fascinating in terms of who is like, easy peasy and who is complex. So I'll give you an example with Brooks, the questions had to be sent in advance. Um, When I interviewed Dolly Parton, I did not have to send the questions in advance. When I interviewed Sarah Michelle Gellar for the Buffy book coming up, I do not have to send my questions in advance. And so there are just those sort of like ego trips that always get to me because it's like one, I'm not new here. 
but also like you are new here. So like there's multiple <laughs> things at play, um, yes. which never cease to amaze me. I would say the housewife that I'm like the closest with, and I'm not trying to say this in like a braggy way, but just like the one that I like talk to most of the time, like on the regular would be Rinna. And Rinna to me is the one I have the most like, she's just such a real person. Um, the Rinna on Real Housewives is a character who I don't, I don't really have strong opinions about Rinna on the show. Not that I'd be like afraid to if I did. It's just like that, I, that to me is a, a separate person from the, from the one I know. But I love like Lisa Rinna's sense of humor. Like I feel like the best display of the Rinna that I know was the Andy baby shower. Um, and it's just like, that's Lisa Rinna. Like she has a sense of humor about herself. Um, she can laugh at herself. And I think not for nothing, there's a reason why she has stayed married. And not to say that like staying married is like uh, the bastion of like good personage, but, but it's, it's an achievement to do it's it. It's an achievement. Yeah. yeah. Especially dating someone who themselves is also yeah. quite famous. So she was wonderful. Karen Huger was wonderful. So funny, very grand in terms of like setting everything up, but like more in like wanting to, wanting to make sure that she was going to be written about in the right way. Like she had a sensitivity about that, that I think was, shrewd i interviewed dorit was very very kind but doesn't have a sense of humor which is not my favorite um i've interviewed lou a bunch and i really i really do like lou lou's kind of like lou is 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 smart and and sort of really agile in terms of rolling with the punches the the person i'm like oh so so i will have up, upcoming on my podcast will be carol radswell um, yes! Oh my god, I was we, hoping you would get we Carol. Did, we taped an episode with Lisa Rinna last season and she forgot to record on her end. This was this was oh. this was the very beginning of COVID before we knew the whole setup, which you know now, which is that like you yes. control both audios. But at yes. that time it was like we each record natively. Oh, and that didn't go so well. Um but that will oh. happen we that will happen eventually. Um but the person I'm like really interested in interviewing is Ashley Darby. She is like on my list of people. And then obviously, if anyone follows me on social, you know, like I'm in constant search of Alex McCord. Um, who <laughs> Who's in Australia. Not, yeah, who will not entertain <laughs> my existence. But I don't blame her. Um, but yeah, I would say like, they're, they're really interesting in how much they run the gamut and in terms of self-awareness, because even some of the more quote unquote self-aware ones like Carol, I don't think are like as self-aware as they might think and I'm trying to think who I think is like the most I think it's the kind of thing where like we're too in it right now specifically them but also even us to really like give it the proper anthropological study um so I guess I am most curious when this is all said and done I'm curious like who the later in life interviews are going to be that really can speak about it not only substantively, but like with it's like when Carol talks about Housewives now, there's a little bit of like you can still feel like there's some residual stuff there. Yeah, the sting of it is still there for her. Yeah, and so I'm curious to see like who will be the person who has the most um not objectivity, but like the most introspection, I should say. And I think that could come that'll come much more down the line. You were in the background or like attended filming of like Luan's cabaret after party in season 10 of New York, that finale, which is 
of a, a, a show full of great episodes, an all-time great episode. You were also in the season 10 opener of Beverly Hills at Kyle's Fashion Show. I think you can see you in the credits, can't you, when Dorit walks in. So technically, you were, in a, you were a friend of, you were in every episode this season. <laughs> yeah. You're on screen more than some of the actual friends of, if mm-hmm. you think about it. Mm-hmm. So what what's it like being a fly on the wall when they film, and particularly when they film at events that you know will likely be in the show and will probably have, whether it's season opener or season finale, have some kind of like part to play in the storyline and, and all that kind of thing. I would say the one observation that I made specifically with the, the, the Roni um, finale episode that you were referencing was, and I think anyone that's like ever taped any reality can tell you this is just like, there's so much more, not to the story, which I'm sure there's more to the story, but just more to the actual taping. And so the interesting thing about that night was that like, that is the night that, that Bethany and Ramona had that big fight at the bar, which I witnessed, but it's like, Bethany left soon after. Bethany was there to do that scene, essentially. And then the rest of the night, like, Sonia and Lou were just, like, hanging out. I had, like, some really fun drunken conversations with Sonia. They were super accessible, super, like, even the cameras were up, but they weren't in camera mode because they knew that this was not footage that was going to be used. And I think that only comes from, the A, they're smart women, but, two, they're adept at how this all works. That is the thing about New York that I've witnessed is like they are just they they have their producer brain on always. And they're and but like and a lot of the women do now, but not as not as not to the degree that the New York women do in terms of knowing the job at hand and knowing how to rise to the occasion to do the job at hand, which are two different jobs. Um, But I just was really, I liked the fact that there's something about Bethany, and I think you can tell this very distinctly in season 11, which is like, she is there to collect her paycheck. And with Sonia and Lou that night specifically, and mind you, Bridget Everett was there, Jake Shears was there, uh, Rachel Dratch was there. It was like such a fun cast of characters everyone was just kind of like hanging out on this roof, shooting the shit, kicking back. And I was like, wow, these are just legends. These are legends. And that's the thing. It's like, I always have a soft spot with New York, but especially with the New York ladies minus Ramona. And it's like, they just are, they are New York. Minus Ramona was said so quickly that I almost missed. I was like, wait, he said minus Ramona. That's the kind of shade you'd nearly miss if you weren't paying attention. And so how did the Beverly, because it's funny that you were at a Beverly Hills taping in New York, because even for just us as viewers, I was thinking, God, it's so surreal seeing these women in New York. Like, what was it like to watch? I mean, obviously, a fashion show is a different vibe. But like, did you pick up any differences or any anything that surprised you? So that was an invite from Rena, but I didn't know that we would be filming. That was not part of uh, what I knew. It was just that she was in town for New York Fashion Week. I had gone to the Dennis Basso show to see her. And then at the Dennis Basso show, she was like, oh my gosh, you have to come to Kyle's show. I was like, of course. And Rinna and I had never met in person at that point. So this was just going to be like our first meeting. Um, I will say my only observation, I spent a lot less time with them. I, I went backstage afterwards to say hi. But I did talk to the ladies outside on the street afterwards while they were waiting for their car because this was when, this was the first time I met Erica who I went on to interview Erica for, it's not a host. I think Erica was interviewed in my story about Beverly Hills Housewives Fashion. I haven't done a full feature on Erica just yet. Maybe that will happen. Um, but I did just notice, they're all. I actually have a photo, I'll send it to you. But I have a photo of all the women sitting on the corner there that I snapped and they're all on their phones. 
And that to me, and like granted, maybe they just were all, you know, I mean, maybe I'm reading into it more than needs to, but it's like in that moment, I just was like, these women, I don't want to say they don't like each other. They just have nothing like they're, again, they're here to do a job, a very they're Beckham style. Yeah. yeah. And so to me, it was like one of those moments of like, you're in New York City, like it's after the fashion show, your heart's got to be racing. Like, wouldn't you want to do like, I would want to do a postmortem, like, you know, like Teddy, like, let's talk about that walk. Um, but they just weren't, <laughs> you know, they weren't in it to like, have a good time. So my sense was in contrast to New York. And again, I don't want to make it sound like I had like a big bone. I was a fly on the wall in these two scenarios. Just you've noticed. Yeah. Yeah. But my sense was that like New York, they're having fun and Beverly Hills, they are having, they're getting the job done. But that's also Wait, like no, kind because I don't know if they're getting the job done well. <laughs> but that's, I mean, I love both those shows for different reasons. And it's funny because on this podcast, a lot of people have come on who started their journey with Beverly Hills. Because in the summer, just gone here in Ireland, Netflix got some early housewife seasons and Beverly Hills became this kind of word of mouth hit with people. But that is something that I've often even just said to people to convince them about New York. I'm like, Beverly Hills is fun, but they clock in and clock out. New York is fun because we see some of it and then some of it happens over the summer and we pick up and we know that on some level, at least some of them are key king when the cameras aren't there. And it just adds a richness, much like Robin and Giselle that you mentioned earlier on Potomac. It adds a little something, something that you don't always get on reality shows if someone's just been dropped in to throw a glass at a dinner party. Which is why I think Beverly Hills like worked so well early on, which is that like, it's like with the Kyle and Kim thing in season one, it was like, even if they stop talking for a few months after this, it's like, we know the it's like that moment precipitated. There had to be drama, whether or not they came back to do season two, which I sometimes I cannot believe that Kim came back to do season two of Beverly Hills. That to me is so yeah. amazing, but it's like they are sisters. So like, they're going to reconcile it's it's not an it's not an if it's a when and having that tension um is just i think the thing that makes shows like that or new jersey in its heyday really operate well whereas with um potomac what you saw this season when it was like the women were just like okay well we're not gonna film with giselle and it's kind of like well what can you do like okay yeah yeah it's so you've met a lot of housewives, you've done interviews with them, you've been, you've been to a taping. Is there anyone that you would actually like to interview or just even have a few minutes face-to-face with or see in action in person? I've never met Karen in person. So that okay. to me would be like the biggest honor. I like Karen so much. She kind of like, I had a similar reaction to Leah Black in Miami, but then like, but like Karen took it and like, she took the baton and like did something better. There's so many things I like about Karen um, that Karen, without question, then McCord. Um, <laughs> Alex McCord, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. Jules from New York, I think is not only an icon, but I, ha- I think has so much to give that was like, that I would be curious about. Um, would love to like check in with Lynn Curtin from OC. I think she would be really fun. Um, I would like to have five minutes alone with Kathy Wakili just to like, you know, I I was going to say something that I shouldn't say, but I was going to say, do you know that scene with um, Marsha Gay Harden in First Wives Club um, where she knocks, where Diane Keaton knocks her in a therapy session? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She takes, it's not like a pillow. She I think it may be a pillow. She takes something and she like whacks her. I'd yeah. like to have that opportunity with Kathy Wakili. Um <laughs> I'm trying to think if there's anyone else who I'm like, 
super oh miss phaedra oh i love miss phaedra Mm, i i love phaedra peak phaedra atlantis like gold moments for her but Phaedra since and even like when she popped up in Braxton Family Values when the actual Braxtons weren't there I was like you will do any show for a check now but yeah I would like to I would like to see what she's like in person because when she was good she was really good and when it went off the boil for me I was like oh I don't know and I know some people still want her back and that's a whole other conversation another question I ask every guest that I have no doubt you will kill it on is Here's a scenario. You're having a dinner party tomorrow with five real housewives. Who are you or friends of or husbands or players in the world? Someone did say the ghost of Bobby's Aaron in one episode. So that will show you the breadth of the breadth of imagination. Who are five people at this dinner party and why? Okay, so this is so interesting. Um, Okay, so I want the realtor Anne from Real Housewives of New York just because I want some old timey, you know, fun. Um, I'm bringing Dorinda, obviously. I am, let's see, I'm bringing Dorinda. I want to like go through franchises here, right? Okay. (laughs) So then I am going to bring Adrian Maloof. Oh. With, and he won't be at the table, but just I'm bringing the chef, the chef along. I forget his name. but he's coming along too. So it's so we've got Adrian Dorinda, Realtor Anne, taking me down to Atlanta. There's so many greats. I'm gonna say Phaedra. I know it's like it might not be, but I love her. I think with Phaedra, I guess I'll say this real quick about Phaedra. I am keen to give Phaedra the opportunity for redemption. And if she mm-hmm. can't land it, then I think we can say good riddance. But I think Phaedra is yeah. granted, should be granted the opportunity for a comeback, especially because worse people in our society have been given a comeback. And also, I've just never really understood Phaedra's motivations. So anyway, so that so True. this dinner would be used to go deep with Phaedra. Then, oh my God, then um, without question, Katie Rose from Potomac, icon legend, person who deserves a book deal, a miniseries, a redemption, all of the above. But so, so Katie, Katie Rose, Phaedra Parks, Realtor Anne, Dorinda Medley, and Adrian Malou. Malou. Actually, Malou. wait, but now that we have these all-stars, we have to get rid of Adrian because I feel like this, she's not worthy of this dinner. Okay, so we have those four. We're kicking Adrian out. <laughs> Let's get, oh, it's a little bit obvious, but I do feel like there's just so much to do. Let's get Medium Allison in there because I would love to see Allison and Katie Rose in the same cinematic universe. Oh my god. See, I knew you'd have a really eclectic one I wouldn't expect. That was exactly what I wanted. Thank you. We're nearly done. I have one last question that is kind of in tribute to you because on your podcast, you almost always go there with your guests and ask them the big question, which is how they feel about Sarah Michelle Gellar. So in honor of that, I want to ask you, what would, how would you feel if Sarah Michelle Gellar went on, I'm thinking just geographically, this is where she would go, went on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. How would that make you feel? I would be devastated. I would be absolutely, I would be, that would be very, very, very difficult for me. Uh, Why? Because I'm very protective of her for a lot of reasons. Um, I don't want, I don't think you go on Housewives and have a good run of it. There are exceptions. I think like Garcelle is a good exception of someone who's like, who was someone who was like, 
not quite given their due, but really respected within Hollywood, who's now earned like a greater respect. It's like the it's the same thing about how I feel about like a Buffy reboot or something. It's just that like I what I want next for her. I have a I mean, so I either want her to go on to a pre-existing show that is a hit so that she is not relied upon because I think both in the case of the crazy ones and with ringer, I think there has been this thing with Sarah after Buffy, whereas like she is expected to carry a show. So in theory, housewives would be good and that she would be going on to something, but I just, I'll say this, sorry to get long winded. I will say that I think Sarah Michelle Gellar has so much to give as an actress, both comedically and dramatically that I just don't think her talents are served in any way on housewives. And I will say that I think that there's a side of Sarah that I know that I would not want the world to have the opportunity to know because I hold it in my heart. And that is to say, Sarah Michelle Gellar is a very big Housewives fan and is really, I don't want to say she's shady, that's like, but like Sarah Michelle Gellar has opinions, I'll say this, about things that I enjoy getting to be on the receiving end of that I would not want other people to have the opportunity to have because they are for my for my eyes and for my ears so <laughs> i just don't think housewives deserve sarah michelle geller okay that said i would love if andy would do don't don't you think i'm not in conversation with Roger happens live regularly being like when's she coming on next when's she coming on next because her last <laughs> yes. appearance was with when i met her in 2017 um but I would love to see her commentate. Like I would love to see her asked about the show more and to hear her opinions. Um, yeah. But they don't deserve her. <laughs> okay. Well, another to go on a slight Buffy, not tirade, but tangent. I loved when you had Charisma Carpenter on your podcast, who is part of obviously the Buffy universe and the Angel universe, and has had a very interesting. Like she's been a a jobbing actress for a very long time and always worked and actually did a TV movie with Kyle Richards, where I think there was some kind of they didn't get along necessarily. Like, I think something like Charisma could be very interesting on Real Housewives as well. I completely agree. I feel like it would, Charisma to me would have a little bit of that Garcelle quality in terms of like being someone who's been doing the work for a long time without recognition Um, or like Eileen. I think Charisma, you, you strike at something really interesting, which is like, I would love to see them bring on someone who has a really dedicated like fan base that within a very specific like sector so it's like um, charisma would just be so interesting because it's like charisma has diehard fans and could walk around the street likely and have I, this is actually I don't want to but like there's a world in which charisma could ex- could walk down the street and have no one recognize her that yeah. should not be the reality if it is but <laughs> of course there's a world not, yes. in which. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think it'd be interesting for them to take someone like a charisma or someone who exists as a really powerful player within a microcosm and, and foist them onto a real housewife show. And I think charisma would be like, I would, it kind of, would, I could see charisma giving Kim Fields energy in a good way. Um, which is that it's just like, I could see her being like really thrown off, but then like learning to like play. It's kind of like, we have yet to see, because like both Kim Richards, not Kim Richards, both Kim Fields and Denise Richards were not able to, like they they were a little thrown by the gloves coming off. And it's like, I want to see, Eileen, I think actually kind of did this a little bit, but I would love to see someone come on, have a season one in which they're kind of like, what did I get myself into? And then have a season two in which they're, they're like, okay, if I'm going to be here, I'm going to go full Housewives. 
I think charisma would be so good, particularly if there is some weird pre-existing beef with Kyle. That would be so Oh my god. I... Charisma and Garcelle v the world. But but specifically v Kyle Richards. That I would be <laughs> Yes, on every level. Okay, I'm 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 into that. And um, I think it is. We have covered so much ground. I do want to let you go in a second, but before we finish, where can people find you online and obviously find your work, such as the paper column and all that kind of thing? You can find me on my socials are Evan Ross Katz. The paper column doesn't have a link, like specifically to the column, um, but my paper column comes out <clears throat> on Monday mornings every week on Paper Mag. And I usually post about them on my socials. And then the podcast is Shut Up Evan, available on all podcast platforms. And the book, it's called Into Every Generation, colon, How Buffy Staked Our Hearts. It is coming out March 2022 from Hachette Media, um, Hachette Book Group, I should say. And it will feature interviews with SMG. It is Sarah's First interview since the Entertainment Weekly 20th anniversary reunion. So when this book comes out, it'll be her first Buffy interview in five years. And if you know me at all, and you know that, or if you don't, but just know that I will, Sarah will be, and the interview's happening very soon after that. It hasn't happened yet. <gasps> but oh we are going to go there in ways that I don't think Sarah has not ever gone only because I don't think she's ever been asked. I think she tends to, there's a thing with Buffy, this happens with Housewives too, where it's like people tend to focus on the big moments, but the way I'm approaching the interview is like, you've talked about the big moments, so let's talk about the small moments and and see what we can get. Oh my God. I mean, I'm presuming that book will make its way to our shores. Like, do you, I mean, do you have, is it going to be outside of the US as well? Yeah, it'll be outside of the US. And, uh, and just to tease a little bit, there will be a number of very familiar faces, including um, politicians and drag superstars and fashion designers alike who will be a part of the book. It's going to be, it's, I don't want to like <laughs> over, over much bigger than just oral history. I think oral history is a component, but it's also, cultural analysis and notes from fans and so some of those fans have come out in the past about their love of Buffy and we'll go deeper with them and and we'll be uncovering some new fans um, as well. I'm also going to be having several celebrities um, watch the show for the first time so there's just going to be a lot of a lot of layers to it. Oh my god see the thing is like I wouldn't talk about it as much now but Buffy was such a big deal for me when it was on and I actually don't go back to it as a show that often because when it was on, I rewatched it so much that I can still like name who directed X episode and talk about whatever story. Like it's so embedded in my pop culture like brain that like the and so I literally bought the Watcher's Guide Volume One and Two when I so I'm like the idea Thank that you were doing this book, I'm like okay, sign me up. There, I'm gonna I would do a Buffy podcast, but there's plenty of them. But like I could if I if I wanted to. I feel so it's very way. exciting. Okay, so that's is that out for pre-order or anything yet, or is that that's probably the no? Um, that'll okay. probably be out for pre-order sometime. It probably won't be out for pre-order until twenty twenty-two. Um, yeah. but but yeah, but when it's out there, believe you me, I will be messaging it uh, up in <laughs> It'll be on the socials. I'm It'll sure be on the socials. Yeah. Evan, we covered so much ground today. We even got to talk about Buffy. So this, I consider this a great success. Thank you so much for talking to me and housewives and me today. Thank you. I just want to say. You are such a fantastic interview. You are such a fantastic person within the pop culture ether. You're such a natural at this forum. I love listening to your voice. I've, you know, before this podcast, you were guesting on Come Through Queen, but I also just want to say you are such an excellent 
you are a, you know how Ramona does other women, you don't support other women. You are an example of a gay person who supports other gay people. And I value that in people. I emulate the goodness that is in you. And I am just such a huge fan of yours. Thank you so much. And you know, this is, you're actually the first American I've had on the show. And I feel like only someone from America would say something that nice. Irish people are like, ah, cheers. And they just wave. So I'm a little bit shook. Thank you very much. That's very kind. I will, I will cherish those words because we need to hear stuff like that with the world the way it is. So Evan, Jesus, on that note, thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you. There you have it. That is Evan Ross Katz on Housewives and Me. Thanks again to Evan for taking some time out of his busy schedule of writing about all sorts of pop culture things and writing a book on Buffy to come on this podcast for a chat about all things Real Housewives. You can, of course, follow Evan on social media and keep an eye out for his book, which is out next year. And apparently it's coming out this side of the world too, which is very exciting. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. If you liked what you heard and you're on Apple Podcasts, you can rate and review the show there. You can find us on social media. It's at Housewives on Me on both Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to follow me on social media, it's Connor Bean is my handle on both Twitter and Instagram as well. I'll be back next week for another brand new episode. Until then, thank you so much for listening. Stay safe and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.